Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So, oh, boy, sorry, I need to clarify this. How do you pronounce your surname? Just so. <laughs> sure. It's tuba, like tuba. shoes. Okay. with tuba. That's mm-hmm. perfect. That's fine. I just, my surname is Twomley. So I've yeah. had, I've had Termley, Twamley, Twanley, all sorts. <laughs> so I, I empathize with you constantly having to correct people. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons, all to a special bonus little interview episode here. A little while ago, I sat down to talk to Professor Jennifer Shuba, who's an internationally recognized expert in the field of demographic security. Particularly in this episode, we're talking about her new book called Eight Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death and Migration Shaped Our World. It's a fascinating conversation. And we get into all sorts of interesting little details, such as challenges that countries with a large youth population face versus challenges that a country with a large elderly population face. What kind of impact might a actively declining population have on a country's foreign policy choices? Of course, in that instance, we just have to talk about Russia But even though the Russian example is pretty clear in the mind, we also talk about other historical examples too, everything from Romania to India and many more besides. So I hope you enjoy this talk we have here. And if you do, make sure to check out Dr. Shuba's book, Eight Billion and Counting. Or failing that, if you'd like to get some bite-sized chunks of this information, and learn more about demographics in the process and how they're relevant to our world, you can subscribe to Dr. Shuba's Substack. And the link for both these things, the book and the Substack, are in the description below. Dr. Shuba was a great sport, and we had a great conversation. So make sure and show your love and appreciation, and check these out. The next voices you hear will be mine and Dr. Jennifer Shuba's. Thanks! And enjoy. Okay, history friends, I'm very happy to welcome onto the podcast Dr. Jennifer Shuba, who's here to talk about her book, Eight Billion and Counting How Sex, Death, and Immigrate and Migration Shape Our World. Welcome on the podcast, Jennifer. 
Thank you so much, Zach. It is my pleasure to be here. <laughs> cool. Well, I think we'd like to get like a little bit of background on you before we start off. I mean, even just a very brief examination of your biography reveals that you've done and are doing an awful lot of stuff. But in, in terms of your interest with demographics, where did that all begin? Well, I think it really began when I was in college. I went to a very small college. Um, in the U.S., we kind of divide them into, you know, the big universities and the small liberal arts colleges. And so I was at a small liberal arts college. In order to get my degree, we didn't really have a lot of choice as to what kind of classes we took. So I was, you know, on the on the short menu, included some classes on migration. And it was really interesting to me just to, to learn about those dynamics. But I also was studying East Asian history and had a professor that there's no doubt in my mind, this is where my interest in big billion milestones came from. Mm -hmm. um, in 1999, when I was an undergraduate, she shows up in our classroom and she paused at the door. And I mean, very dramatically so that we would all turn and look and she had this <laughs> black armband on, which was odd. And then she marches into the class and she said, today, world population has hit 6 billion people. <laughs> this is a travesty. I never had children. You should never have children. We have to stop this overpopulation. And I thought, whoa, like that's, that's intense. Um, and I think it planted a seed in my mind and I'm kind of contrarian by nature. So when somebody says you shouldn't do this, I think, well, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, but you know, that plus the migration courses, I think really got me started on the path of population, which is really related to environmental issues, um, in, in many ways. And, and I had a longstanding interest in the environment. It's never been more relevant as it is now. It constantly on the news, we see migration. And of course, the climate change crisis is very relevant. And oh, and then before we even look at the, the current war going on, it just seems like it's the last thing we need. We, we have more than enough on our plate as is. And do you think maybe almost as a result of that, do you think demographics are sometimes overlooked in the grand picture of not even country versus country, but just when we talk about human beings and our impact on the planet, I don't really hear people talk about population all that much. I, I, I more often hear them talk about like migration or climate change and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know. It's funny because, as you said, it demographics and we could just say fertility, mortality, migration, these are your three building blocks. They run as an undercurrent through pretty much 90% of the stories you would pick up and, and read in the newspaper. Like there's some sort of angle on that in all of them. But as you say, they're not front and center. And I think that is what has been really interesting to me about studying demographics is that it's almost like this, you know, the lava that moves under the surface of the earth. It definitely is important for shaping um, outcomes, right. but it can be easily overlooked and people don't realize how important it is. So I feel like in my research, what I try to do is pull those variables forward, bring them to people's attention to say, well, uh, you know, you're interested in war for example. And actually, this was the exact conversation I had as I was graduating from undergrad and knew I wanted to get a PhD. I said to my advisor, you know, we've spent all this time talking about war and peace. Hmm. Are there people who study like 
underlying factors. I mean, I get that it's about these decision-making and, and things, but, you know, I really feel like things like environmental pressure probably have something to do with why people fight. And she said, yeah, there's a whole, there's a whole sub-discipline of that. And <laughs> here's where you should go to school. And, and so I think that's exactly what I try to do in my whole career is say, well, those are proximate causes you all are studying, but let's look at the real underlying causes and draw attention to those. Yeah, cool. I, th- I think something that your book really, really strikes me, like w- one of the things that you highlight is how countries try to artificially influence their population, whether that's ha- having fewer or more children. And of course, I think one of the things that comes to mind is, is China's one child policy. That's probably all ingrained in our minds at this point. But any any other examples really stick out to you of countries that it tried to artificially influence their demographics one way or the other. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, as I was writing this book, became obsessed with this idea of demographic engineering, where the government intentionally manipulates the population to build the nation. Hmm. And we're so used to these extreme examples, um, like China's one child policy, but I'll say at the outset, everybody does it. I mean, in the United States, it's our tax season here. And, um, you know, as you do your taxes, they ask you how many dependent children you have. And it gives you a little bit of money back on your taxes. Um, many state countries in the world will give you cash, depending on your, your children. Um, so there are all sorts of forms that this demographic engineering takes. But another example that really stands out to me is uh, Romania. So China mm. is a great example of anti-natalist policy. The government thinking, we have too many kids, let's try to have fewer. In Romania, under Ceausescu, there was the idea that there weren't enough people. And so um, if we could bring a little migration and identity in here as well. Ceausescu said there aren't enough ethnic Romanians specifically. And I don't want to bring in a lot of immigrants. What we need to do is we need to have more Romanian babies. But people didn't want to have Romanian babies. They were fine with the number of children they were having. So he had to have very strict coercive policies, outlawing abortion, outlawing contraception, making women come for monthly medical checks into their 40s um, to make sure they weren't actively trying to prevent pregnancy. And it's true that the fertility rate went up. The birth rate went up. There were more children, but they weren't necessarily wanted children. And I'm you know, you're, you're young, so you might not rem- be, you know, you wouldn't remember this the way I do, but I remember watching the news and um, there were all sorts of images of Romanian orphanages yeah, with children with terrible, um, you know, conditions that they were in and a, a rainbow of afflictions. And so they, uh, there were real consequences to those coercive policies. And as soon as Ceausescu was gone, the fertility rate reverted to what it was beforehand sure yeah absolutely i i I think unfortunately i'm sure romania is better for a lot of things but one of the things that sticks with my mind as a result of growing up with that is just i think of romania i think of orphanages and that that just as a direct consequence of what ceausescu has has done Going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you now. How likely do you think a policy like Ceausescu's would have been 
had it been a female in charge rather than <laughs> this might be veering towards controversial territory, but it just strikes me that uh, these kind of policies, even in China as well, would have been made by men generally. Well, there is though the big example of Indira Gandhi. So I can totally see the logic, ah. but Indira Gandhi throws a wrench in that logic because of her mass sterilization campaigns in India, sterilizing millions of men and women in order to get India's fertility rate lower. So it's interesting how the one-child policy has so much attention, but India's forced sterilization does not get nearly the same kind of attention. Mm. Um, But, you know, I've always been disappointed in my sex that when we are put in charge, we don't necessarily... Um, make the world a better place the way ideally you would hope. Oh, well, only if a woman were in charge, things would be better. There's so many examples (laughs) of women who have been just as bad as everyone else. Right. (laughs) I think, yeah, one of the things that really struck me, because I I didn't know about that at all. So when I read about that in your book, I just, to me, when I think of Gandhi, I mean, I, I knew that then some of his relatives kind of like went went into politics then but jeepers that's not exactly the best kind of legacy to leave behind uh all things considered considering what gandhi is known for it's not exactly you don't think sterilization when you come to the name of gandhi yeah do not those two things do not go together (laughs) yeah but she uh she really um and it was it was tied in with international pressure too. I think there's so much more to that story that I would even love to learn because the roots of that are in the attention to population growth of the 1960s at the really the start of the environmental movement, uh, which the U.S. environmental movement had a big impact on the global environmental movement. So mm. um, there was a lot of attention to human population in the 1960s. And it's a really, you know, complex, interesting history that even brings in lots of Cold War politics. But as U.S. policymakers became very aware of population growth, in part through attention to books like The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich that was published in 1968. I mean, that book was really out there in the zeitgeist. He appeared on the Johnny Carson show, I think, you know, (laughs) over a dozen times. So people were, this really got into um, people's minds that overpopulation was an issue married with um, the environment, but in the U.S. government's mind, uh, and we see this for both Republican and and Democratic administrations in the United States, they thought about it in terms of communism because they thought, well, if you have really rapid population growth, in these poor countries abroad, what sounds attractive to you to, you know, put food in your bellies? Hmm. Communism. And so they worried about the links between overpopulation and communism. And of course, as one of the major Cold War powers, then policies follow from that. And so I know Indira Gandhi faced some pressure that tied food aid to her ability to curb population growth in India. So there's both this international and this domestic dynamics that are at play in that story. Right. It does seem like a bit of a leap from just overpopulation to communism. I mean, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it's not that natural a transition, but I mean, we we've talked we've talked a bit about governments playing a role here, but of course there's natural and just gradual factors that can also affect demographics. 
how can we kind of quantify these in the West where currently people are having, generally people seem to be having fewer children than they did, say, two or three generations ago? Yeah, and I think this is the the thing that we're always trying to understand when people have um, a lot of children. Well, we'll just say when women, when women have a lot of children, the question that we ask is, do they really want that many? What would change their minds? And how do you empower women to have the number of children they desire? So that same set of questions can be asked, though, on the other end of the spectrum. And there are some interesting surveys that they increasingly show women report a higher ideal number of children than they actually have. So the gap kind Hmm. of runs the other way. They're not having as many as they say that they would want. In in one of my newsletter editions, I have a weekly newsletter, I actually looked at some of the data that there was a lag that once they kind of realized they would not culture, like on a, not on an individual level necessarily, but once women start to accept that they will not be having two or three children, they adjust their ideal number of children downwards kind of to meet the reality, which is an interesting, you know, order in which things happen. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so what drives it? Well, economics is a big part of it. Um, the idea that children are incredibly expensive. And as a mom of two young boys, yes, they are, they are very <laughs> expensive. <laughs> um, especially in many settings of low fertility where there's not childcare for very young children. I mean, often there's not good public education available for children until they're age five. So that's five years per child of trying to scrape together very expensive childcare. Um, I think in general, economic uncertainty shows up as a reason that women don't want as many children. And then there are also factors like lifestyle. That one can be really hard for some conservative groups to swallow that Mm -hmm. a woman would intentionally say, I'm having fun as a a child free person, not childless, but child free. Um, But when you really, the surveys bear it out. And I will say, when I talk to women and they're being really honest, they say you really don't make it look so great with your screaming children, dirty <laughs> little boys, um, whom I love very much and I'm glad to have, but I get what they're saying. <laughs> yes, I, I think myself and my wife intend to have kids, but we're the same. And, and, and a lot of people our age are similar story. I'm 30 now, but it's the case like, oh, yes, I want children. But first, I want this, this, this and this. I want stability. I want a house. I want secure job, all this kind of thing. So and travel and, you know, and some freedom and and Mm. all of that, I think, especially because we, we stay in education so long, and you and I are a great example of that we stay in our education so long. Yeah. And in some ways, you feel like you defer some of these, these other experiences. So by the time you get all of your education, (laughs) and you have all the experiences you want, then you're kind of running up on the end of reproductive years there, and you only have time for one or two children. Mm, that's that's very true as well. Yeah, I mean, it, taking taking a different angle on, on this, say in the case of countries where there are a lot of children who then grow up to be young adults, and there's a kind of almost an imbalance between the amount of young people in a country versus the amount of old people in a country. What kind of, like, paint a picture for us of the kind of advantages or or maybe disadvantages that a country with those kind of demographics would face? I love the way you phrase that, actually, because oftentimes people don't phrase it that way in terms of advantages. I think um, 
because I come from, I'm a political scientist and so much of what we study is war, as I've I've already Mm. mentioned, there's such an emphasis on um, how do hordes of young men in particular contribute to outbreaks of civil conflict. And so it's really seen as um, a detriment to society to have so many youth, but it could just as easily be an advantage. And, And that's one of the things I try to show in the book over and over is that there's no one demographic trend that's inherently good or bad. It's really just, you know, how, how, what do you make of it as you go? Hmm. Um, one of the major advantages, of course, can be a large working age population. And so if you have the kinds of policies in place to really take advantage of a large um, labor force, then you can reap what's called the demographic dividend. It's that portion of GDP growth that comes from specifically having lots of potential workers. Hmm. But if you don't have those kinds of policies in place, then you squander the dividend. And so um, you can pass through the time when your workforce is um, the bulk of the population to a time when older people who are out of the workforce are the bulk of your population without having reaped that dividend. So what kinds of policies are we talking about here? You know, is the business climate friendly for foreign investment? Foreign direct investment seems a big part of that. Is your economy set up so that the jobs that are available take advantage of a large labor force? Like if you're an extractive economy that relies on natural resources and doesn't really need a lot of labor, that doesn't really help when you have a large labor force. And in fact, that's where a lot of the conflict literature comes in because you got a whole bunch of young people without jobs who might be very disappointed in that. But if you have a manufacturing based economy, then there's a place for those people to work and, and earn a living. Right. Yeah. That's a, a, a very, a very full picture there. Thank you for that. Very extensive. Uh, let's, let's flip that though on, on the inverse and say in a country with maybe a, a, a low birth rate and a, a low mortality rate. So let's say like a quite a large aged population. Uh, most like the one that sticks out to me most is probably Japan. I feel like that's talked about quite a lot where you have a very like a quite a lot of people in, in their in their golden years, but not that many people below them to kind of pick up the slack and pay for the pensions and all that kind of thing. That's the, the messages I seem to get. Are, is, is that correct? Well, it's partly correct. But what's interesting about these countries that are really facing population aging, like Japan, like the United States, uh, the UK, I'll call these countries in Western Europe, is that their situations are not identical. So for the same reason, I would say when we look at a youthful population as not inherently good or bad, I really keep trying to steer the conversation in my book um, away from looking at population aging as inherently bad. I mean, I think that is really mostly how people talk about aging. And, And there's a lot more I could say about why it's not so bad. But I think economically, not every country that's facing aging has this pay as you go setup where today's workers pay for tomorrow's retirees. Mm. Um, there are institutional differences in that. Uh, and more than that, there are differences in retirement culture and work culture. Um, just looking across developed countries, the, the world's richest countries, the average age that people leave the workforce for good can differ by, you know, 15, 16 years spread. Japan has one of the highest 
So the average age of workforce exit from the workforce in Japan is 71 years. Whoa. And so when we think about, you know, oh, retirement is 65, that's a really outdated concept. And I think that that's part of what drives our fear of population aging. Because if you just look at the numbers of people over 65, you think, whoa, Mm. but you know, 65 keeps getting closer and closer to me every year. I'm, (laughs) I'm only 41. So I'm not too close, but I think probably more about it than many people do. I'm not sure that I would, what on earth would I do with myself if I weren't working (laughs) at 65, right? So so there's still some wiggle room to rethink um, population aging, to to change our mindset away from, well, you retire and then you die. (laughs) Because (laughs) thankfully, life expectancy has changed so that that's not necessarily the case anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I just think it's funny there. You you mentioned the the age being like seventy one in Japan, whereas I think I saw in your book how in France the there were literal riots when the government tried to change the retirement age from sixty two to sixty five. Uh, <laughs> it is very yes. this very different cultures, so that definitely does play a role when it comes to these differences in in demographics. How how do they kind of manifest themselves as, as challenges? There's probably obvious ones, but I mean, I, I remember reading very relatively recently, even just how in Russia, it's populations like actively declining and how that may be playing a role in Putin's current aggression. Perhaps he feels he has no choice. And if he doesn't act now, then it'll be too late. Yeah. As, even though population aging itself is not something that I think we need to lament, There are subtle differences, maybe not so subtle differences in what causes population aging and depopulation among countries that are really important to point out. And so you're right to point out Russia. Um, You know, we know that as a population ages, you know, there's fewer births and the life expectancy is generally longer over time. If, if the fertility rate is below two, like one to replace the biological mommy, biological daddy, the population Mm -hmm. will eventually shrink without immigration. So that in and of itself, it feels alarming because it's new, but pretty soon within a couple of decades, that's going to be the norm. What's different in Russia's case is that that depopulation is not just coming from long life expectancies and um, the, and low fertility. It comes from low life expectancy. So Russia is known in the the 2000s for having incredibly low male life expectancy. I mean, it was about 58 years. Whoa. And to put that in context, the poorest countries on the planet at the time, it was 54. So they were just barely above that. Yeah. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry shampoo, Chantilly cake and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. And a lot of that came from alcohol abuse and poor health. And so Putin put in place a lot of policies to try to regulate alcohol and and deal with that. And and Russia's male life expectancy went up to about 66. It's still terrible, but it's at least it's not 58. I really think that we will start to see a downturn again in Russian male life expectancy because public health scholars have shown that a lot of that alcohol abuse came from social disorder and stress mm. about social disorder. And that's exactly like the era that Russia is really entering into. And the same for low fertility, um, uncertainty about the future and a dismal view of the future drove a lot of the low fertility in Eastern Europe after the end of the cold war. Again, what kind of a future is, is Russia or Russian people thinking that they're entering into? So to bring it back to like, what was Putin thinking? Hmm. Well, oh, of course we don't know if I knew that, like I could be very, very famous, but <laughs> uh, certainly we know he's been obsessed with Russia's depopulation. You see it in his speeches and in his policies, but it, that's his rhetoric. And at the same time, he doesn't seem to care if he loses a bunch of lives of young people and yeah. young men. So there's a total disconnect there. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, it is a bit jarring to see him be so reckless with, with Russian lives, considering he's supposed to be concerned about the declining birth rate. I just found a, I found an article a little while ago that said, it, from the Guardian, Russia's population undergoes the largest ever peacetime decline. Now, this was this was back in October 2021, back when we didn't realize what was coming down the pipeline. And it says that the natural population in Russia fell by 997,000, nearly a million, between October 2020 and September 2021. Now, this cites COVID as a major reason for why, but uh, goodness me, like pressures like that have to be felt somewhere. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's interesting to compare that to times in the early 2000s when Russia's population, sometimes they would shrink the, on annually 600,000 people a year. Hmm. But like you said, over, almost a million is a change and, and adding COVID onto all of this. Um, it's clear that Russia is headed for a permanent depopulation. We just really don't see there's not any forces that I, I can see that would turn that around. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in my discipline, again, with the obsession with war, um, <laughs> one of the theories that I've kind of explored to understand, could population have anything to do with Russia's behavior? It's called power transition theory. And it's the idea that a declining power, knowing that they're declining, 
will act while they still can because mm. they don't know they're only going to grow weaker. And it's possible that that could explain some of Russia's behavior. I'm a little bit skeptical about it because I think it can kind of over predict conflict, but, but it's interesting to, to think about in Russia's case for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It, that sounds almost like a, a kind of preemptive war kind of theory. I've seen yeah. a, a lot of political leaders from the 18th, 19th century are arguing for, for war now while we have the upper hand, that kind of thing. So maybe, I mean, I, I did politics for my undergrad, so maybe politics is, has borrowed a little bit from history and, and vice versa. You love to see it. <laughs> yeah. You, you did write uh, that if we want to talk about military strategy, economic growth, foreign policy, public health, etc., we need to start with population. And I, I think having talked about what we've talked about so far, I think that's it, it does really, really capture that. I think there needs to be more of a focus on on population metrics to kind of better understand the, the world that we're in. But in, in terms of trends to come, what are the major kind of demographic demographic trends you see coming in the next few decades? If we could ask you to look into your crystal ball. Well, and the great thing about demographics is it's the best crystal ball we have. Uh, if we want to understand the future, like let's say we want to understand who will be entering the workforce 20 years from now. Well, you can just go to kindergartens and see <laughs> who, who's filling the desks there. So it is, it's great for that reason, because a lot of the future has already been born. And it's great because demographics really follow pretty predictable patterns. Um, so one of the trends that we will see, and this is really the same trend, I'll, I'll kind of paint it as two, but it's really the same trend, is falling fertility mm. in places where it's high. I, uh, in putting together some of the, the talks that I've done to promote the book, went back into the data and um, what, because one of my arguments in the book is that trends change, but our thinking doesn't always keep up. I kind of challenged myself and, and realized that when I, in the year 2000, if you look at how many countries in the world had total fertility rates of five children on average per woman, which is pretty high, mm. it was 39. You know, a lot of what I was studying at that time looked at relationship between very young and growing populations and civil conflict. Right. No, no. Well, what is it today? It's eight, eight, only eight countries have a total fertility rate of five or higher. <sighs> and that is just, that's a remarkable difference between, you know, in just, just a, a couple of decades, we're really moving overall to falling fertility. And I think that surprises a lot of people because, you know, for example, when people think of sub-Saharan Africa, they just think very high birth rates, <laughs> very rapidly growing populations. Part of that is true because there are large cohorts of people, women who are potential mothers, and therefore they're going to still have this, it's called population momentum. It's built-in momentum for population growth, mm. but fertility overall is falling. And so the other part of this trend is we're headed towards an aging world. And I think that is remarkable. We've never had this happen in all of human history. Everything we know about, you know, theories of economics or politics were, were derived in the context of a world of young and growing populations. But fertility is falling in places where it's high. 
and it is falling to below replacement in places where it isn't even all that high. So eventually we're moving towards a world of depopulation. Like pop, overall population growth has already peaked. My book's called 8 billion and counting, but you're starting to count slower because <laughs> it, it'll be more years before we get to 9 billion than it was to go from seven to eight. Okay. So ha- have you ever seen the film Children of Men? Yes. Where, <laughs> I don't want to derail us completely, but for, for those that don't know, Children of Men is kind of like a dystopian future where women lose the ability to give birth. It's only set in the year 2027, so might have been jumping the shark a bit, but uh, <laughs> at least according to your expertise, we won't be heading in that direction anyway. No, I think, it's, isn't it funny that so much of the dystopian literature and, and films have to do with births? Yeah. And, and and yet, as you noted at the, the outset of this, we don't seem to pay that much attention to demographics. So again, there's a, there's a disconnect there. I mean, I think the nice thing is there are some people who are always going to want to have children. Mm-hmm. So it's not as if we are moving to a world where no one decides they want children anymore. I mean, if you should visit my street um, in Memphis, Tennessee, it is filled with children. My exact kids ages. I mean, there's just so many second and third grade boys specifically. Um, But I think the challenge for us might be more culturally, that if there are fewer children in society over time, does that affect the way that children and families are valued? We think that's an important conversation for us to have. Um, Hmm. And and I don't know the direction that would take, but, but it's definitely something to pay attention to. Yeah, that that is interesting. It's very this whole conversation's been uh, very thought provoking, but I can't I can't help but feel there was there was a lot of facts that I, I read from your book and struck a chord with me, not always in a, in a positive sense. So, for for one example, you wrote ninety eight percent of the world's future population growth will take place in developing countries, yet these are countries least equipped to handle such growth. So in light of that, is there reason to be positive for the future, dare I ask? <laughs> yeah, so, I, you know, and it's funny because you almost uh, encapsulated there my own writing journey with the book. I kind of started writing the book knowing that fact mm. and understanding that we have found through quantitative and qualitative studies that there is a relationship between poverty and conflict and rapid population growth. Um, It just seems to overwhelm the state's ability to handle, you know, so many job entrants, for example. Mm. Um, And and one example of this might be looking at the country of Niger, where the median age, so 50% of the population is younger than uh, about 16 years old. Mm. This is opposed to Japan where it's 48. Okay. So two very different ends of the spectrum there. We should be cautious when we, are, are thinking of the next couple of decades, you know, if I were to have to predict outbreaks of civil conflict and um, hunger or poverty, I would say, yeah, we're still in for a whole lot of that kind of hurt because of um, the, the historical relationship between rapid population growth mm. and, and all of those things. But overall, if we take a camera and zoom way out, (laughs) the fact that we are moving towards slower population growth, um, lower fertility, longer life expectancy, better quality of life, 
I think means in more of the medium and long term, things will be getting better. Mm, mm. No, well, well, that is very good to hear. Let's just hope that no more uh, Russian type wrenches are, are thrown into those predictions and, and all the complications that go with it anyway. Uh, Dr. Shuba, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It has been um, a fantastic conversation. I appreciate yes. it. Brilliant. And I feel I feel like we could get into so many other different angles. Perhaps we'll have you on again in the future to talk about all sorts of other related things that we could keep on going into. But for now, I think I will release you. And uh, thank you again. Is, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? Where can we get your book, 8 Billion and Counting? Uh, the book is available from local retailers and, of course, the big Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are interested in bite-sized tidbits of demographic trends um, and their implications, I do have a newsletter for Substack. Sure. It's jennifershuba.substack.com, and you could subscribe to that. It is generally a four-minute read or under every week, and I do a, a you know behind the headlines and a number of the week. And then, of course, I am on Twitter and LinkedIn, and people can follow me on both of those sites. Mm, Excellent. Well, I think I have followed you on Twitter. And if you uh, send me that link for your Substack, I'll be sure to post it in the show notes so that uh, demographically keen listeners can, can go and check that out. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jennifer, and take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 